The New Activist is presented by International Justice Mission, who remains deeply committed to the work of justice for the oppressed. To find out more about the work of IJM or to follow them on social, head to IJM.org. Well, this is The New Activist, a show that features conversations with activists and leaders who are tackling some of the world's biggest humanitarian issues from the front lines of injustice. My name is Eddie Koffeltz, and it is such a joy to be with you today as we welcome Cynthia Moreland. Miss Moreland is the executive director of DC 127. DC 127 is dedicated to protecting children and empowering and preserving families. They provide wraparound services to parents and grandparents who are isolated, overwhelmed, and under-resourced. They, in their work, walk with foster families through every stage of the fostering process, from getting licensed to supporting children in their home. DC 127 is committed to providing prevention services and resources to stabilize family so that every family has a chance to thrive. I am so excited for you to hear today's conversation because we haven't really talked too much about foster care and the foster care system on the show, but today, Ms. Moreland was just kind enough to answer some of my very basic questions, but I hope that those questions and moreover, her answers are helpful for you. It is probably worth noting that this year on The New Activist, we are highlighting a lot of local organizations. This one and a few others this year so far have been out of the DC area, and I hope that primarily, if you're in the area, you can be a part of their work. But if you are not in the area where a majority of you aren't in the area, that you and I together can learn about the broader issue that they are working on and maybe even start our own next great local solution. And with that, here is Cynthia Moreland. So in reading your bio, I was struck by the fact that you got your bachelor's in poli-sci, and then you have gone on to be the executive director of several organizations that are committed to serving uh, like vulnerable populations of children. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that trajectory. Did one kind of like lead into the other, or I'm, I'm curious about the, the movement of that? While I was... Um in high school growing up in Washington, D.C., I wanted to be a lawyer. And so when I went to college, my thought process and my preparation was to do political science and then matriculate on to law school. Antioch College was very much a social movement and advocacy and a very granola campus where we were inspired to changed the world and we pushed out a lot of social workers. And we spent two quarters per year on campus and two in a work study. And that work study offered a practicum of professional experiences. And the more that um, I engaged with the practicum, the less I became interested in law and the more I became inspired to serve. Um, I didn't fully flush that out right out of college. I took a marketing position with a bank, but in my mind, there was also the satisfaction that I'd experienced as a college student doing my different placements. Were you scared to kind of change that dream? Because going to law school, I mean, that's a big 
big pursuit. Was there any, like, what, what was it like for you to kind of realize that your trajectory of your life was progressing? Well, like most people, life started happening. Some of it <laughs> intentional, some of it not. I fell in love when I was in college. I got engaged the day I graduated college. Um, so I started having children and then I fell in love with my children and really focused my attention on them. And I didn't, I was a full-time mother. I didn't have a career for 15 years. And so I was a full-time mother and very satisfied and was exactly where I wanted to be. But as my children grew up, I continued to grow and I, I wanted to do something professional outside of the home. And so, no, it was such a long, slow process that I didn't feel, it didn't feel jarred. I will say I, my middle daughter just passed the New York bar. And so sometimes we don't fulfill the dreams we have ourselves, but our children do. Congratulations to her. That's no joke. That's that's hard work. Yeah, she's quite amazing. And um, so I feel very fulfilled as a mother. I have used my acumen to think analytically that I would have further developed in law school and never gave any of my children any direction or guidance on what they should be. Uh, she had has a passion for reading, and actually her father suggested that that may be something she wants to do, and she thrived in law school. So, you know, when we, we set out to make plans, um, all of those plans will be used for our good and our, our development and our completeness, and I do feel very complete at this stage in my life. And so those ideas aren't wastes. They're part of the journey. And the journey takes turns and pivots and it hits snags and bumps and all of those can be used. So I feel that I'm really using my gifts. And so, no, I don't feel anything lacking or I don't feel like I shifted something that I should have pursued. Yeah, that's a good progression and a good lesson for us because you really did use it all. I mean, I'm just yeah. in reading your bio, I'm looking at it. I mean, besides the fact that like what you're saying about your family, you have led significantly through different organizations, all of them involved in really important like forms of activism, advocating for single parents and adolescent girls and for people in the foster care system. I'm wondering what, I mean, I know you had spoken a bit about your time in Antioch, but I mean, you've really given like a lot of your career and brain power and abilities to to serving these populations. I'm curious what drives you in that. It's my community. I'm an African American woman and if I don't care and try and change my community, who will? So it's a sense of community, belonging, um, compassion and wanting something better for all of us, not just me. It's really the need that was around you and in yes. and and responding to that makes so DC one twenty seven is kind of what we're talking about today. I know you do this a lot, but I'm curious for our sake, can you tell us why DC one twenty seven exists? Absolutely. In two thousand twelve, the faith community inspired by the leadership Aaron, Pastor Aaron Graham at the district church you know, was hearing stories about children needing foster home placements 
in DC and there being a void of homes available to receive them. Children were sleeping in very compromising situations. They were sleeping in government offices and buildings, and there were lots of Band-Aids for a burgeoning problem. So the faith community got together and had a prayer gathering. And from that initial gathering, they said, okay, the, the problem is so significant, we need to do more. So they began to organize themselves. And there is a national network of 127 organizations that are rooted in the gospel according to James, in which the Lord requires us to care for vulnerable populations, specifically widows and orphans. Of course, we don't call children in foster care orphans, but we do care for vulnerable children and and families that are fragile. And so the district church really took on the call for that organization of this concern and formulated a nonprofit that's separate and distinct and whose mission is really to serve and support children who need foster care protection and also support adoptive families. And we've really focused on the most vulnerable and those are children in foster care or those who live in circumstances that make them vulnerable to neglect and abuse. So our founding principle is to make sure there are enough foster homes that are trained and and that there are enough supports for children in foster care. But we started working upstream as well to try and empower parents to remove some of the systematic barriers of racism and the systematic controls of life and poverty so that families could thrive and parents could do all that they wanted to do and desired for their children, just like I do for my three daughters. I'm aware of the fact that there are a lot of people listening who uh, may have considered foster care and would like to do that maybe at some point in their life, but don't know a ton about it. And so I want to ask some questions, if it's okay with you, that are just real basic, but I think- And I will answer them to the best of my ability. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. That's all I could ask. You said that there were just systemic barriers to foster care. Would you mind unpacking those a little bit more? Sure. So we primarily serve, and, and foster care is an issue of families living in poverty, primarily. How we define neglect and abuse is often because parents living in poverty don't have adequate provision. For instance, we're all engaged in all, most school children throughout the US are engaged in distance learning. If a family doesn't have a device where the children can log on to Zoom, then the children are absent from school. And children not being in school consistently is considered neglect. So DC public schools have made available laptops and internet connectivity for parents who can't afford it. Many of the parents we serve can't get to the schools to pick up the laptops. And so they may or may not have internet connectivity in their home and their children may not be logging in consistently, not because the parents aren't interested in supporting them, but because they have inconsistent access to technology. That's one that's a a COVID result 
And then many parents are overwhelmed and they're alone. They don't have enough resources. They may have a psychological diagnosis that's not being treated. They may have a drug addiction that's overtaken their judgment. And so they make poor decisions. So what we try and do is alleviate, we're not a drug treatment facility, but we minimize those feelings of isolation by pairing parents with a volunteer who supports them. If they don't have enough provision for food, um, during COVID, we've been providing monthly grocery deliveries. So it's just like any other task that you're attempting to undertake, but when you don't have information, resources, or support, you're not going to be that successful. And so we really try and move those barriers and provide the wraparound support parents need and access to information. And unfortunately, for a lot of the parents that we're supporting, they may have spent time in foster care themselves. So if you've never been parented effectively, you don't really have a guidebook to provide that sort of care for your children. So we're having to introduce concepts that are totally foreign. I don't want to get lost in in the verbiage here. We're talking about the fact that biological families of children are oftentimes because of resources, mental health, addiction, are the government is saying fundamentally, like, we don't feel that you are fit to raise children. And so we are going to pull these children out of your home and put them in foster care. Is that an accurate summation? I know it's very oversimplified. We work closely with the DC Child Family and Protective Services. And what we hear them saying is you need help caring for your children. And the help that you need we feel we need to remove your child until we can provide that help for you. And then we're going to support you while you're caring for their for your children. The bulk of the referrals we get are from CFSA. And CFSA knows that they can't do a better job raising their children. What CFSA believes is you need help. And their approach to help is coordinating community nonprofits like DC-127 to provide that help. So the hope then, it seems like in the ideal scenario, the hope then is everybody is trying to support the families and support the children so that these children and their families don't have to be separated, that they're able to get the resources they need to thrive. Exactly. Okay. You really got me with that example about Zoom, because is there a case where in theory, because a family can't afford to even get to one of the laptops or you know iPads that's being provided, that there's a scenario where a child would be removed from their home because they're unable to have their kid attend Zoom classes? No, I haven't experienced that. No. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what the experience that would happen is if a child is missing from school via Zoom classes, an investigation would be opened. You know, one of the complexities of COVID is there are fewer touches. We know domestic violence is on the rise, is on a, at an all-time high because people are quarantined at home. We know that child abuse and neglect rates are down. That's not because we've solved the issue. It's because no one is there to see. 
So yeah. when a, a, a teacher says this student's attendance is inconsistent and I haven't seen them in a week, then CFSA or whatever state agency will open a case to investigate. They won't go in and remove. They'll say, is everything okay? And what resources do you need? And then they may coordinate with the public school to get the resources or with a community agency to make sure that they get them. But when a child is in harm's way is when you you would like for the government agency to remove the child. I feel like families who are trying incredibly hard, but are also suffering under any number of conditions often get a bad rap because they are just kind of labeled as other oh, bad parents. They, they aren't able to do their fundamental job of being a parent to this child that they brought into the world. That doesn't strike me as fair. You spend a lot of time with these families. Can you tell me what you actually see inside of these families who are trying hard, but sometimes trying hard isn't, you need more, you need help? What I experience with our families are loving parents who are stuck who have a job where they are considered an essential worker right now, but they can't get to work because childcare centers are closed and they need support. We work with parents who seemingly the deck is stacked against them, but they still want to try one more thing. And fortunately, yes, society does judge people and it does judge poor people and it gives advice to people that's meaningless because they don't have the resources to move themselves from it. But fortunately, we work with government agencies and a host of nonprofit partners who are deeply committed to the work that we're doing and judgment doesn't come into it. We all strategically work together to empower parents to help them to make the changes that they want for themselves and to provide them support. And we also have a very committed core of volunteers who, you know, they get frustrated. Our parents are not perfect, just like I'm not perfect. They don't meet every scheduled meeting. Um, You do have to help them to understand what's required of them to help themselves. But our volunteers don't judge them. They don't give up on them. They actually dig deeper when those instances come up. So yes, there's always somebody negative that we could give voice to, but I'd rather focus on all the positive energy and all the people who work tirelessly without judgment. Because if I walked in a day in one of the single mom's shoes, I don't know that you wouldn't have quite a few judgmental things to say about me and my choices. So since I don't get the opportunity to face those challenges, it's meaningless. Yes, society judges them, but we work with committed organizations and we're not judging. We're really trying to uplift um, people who need it. And that concerted effort, it makes a difference. We are changing lives. Our families are thriving and they are making connections with people who are minimizing those feelings of being isolated and alone. They're thinking through problems now instead of hiding from them. 
they're gaining access to resources and those resources are helping and their children are thriving. 98% of the families we serve, their kids stay with them through our prevention effort. So it's working. Yes, it's working. That's intense. I mean, 98%. I mean, that is- 98%. That's an undeniable number. And we're not doing anything magical. I mean, we have a comprehensive, holistic, grassroots way of working with families. So it's really to the credit of our families. They haven't given up and they just need help navigating transitional moments and having community. So then the other part of DC-127, you say in your mission and vision statements is we walk with foster families through every stage of the fostering process from getting licensed to supporting a child in their home. So there's this other piece to it where in the event that a child does for some reason become a part of the foster care system, so they are not with their family of origin, but they're now in this system, you begin to work with the families who are in the fostering process. For you to help with the fostering process, there's inherent in that that there is a need for help. Mm-hmm. And so what what are the needs for help? Because I don't know this. As in my mind, you just hop online and you sign up and off we go. But there's clearly more to it than that. We work with CFSA. We provide information sessions every month. We provide information, the initial orientation session, and CFSA is the only licensing agency in the district. And then we really hand them off to CFSA for licensing. Once they become a foster parent, they need support. 50% of new foster parents give up during their first placement in year one. No way. And this sets children back again, because yeah. that means they have to be, they were just removed from their biological home. They get a foster home, which feels very strange. And then that foster home has to have closure. And then they have to be introduced to another foster home. So during our information session, we try and do a few things to prevent that. We explain fully the trauma that the children in foster care may have experienced. And it's a different thing to talk about that in theory, but then to tuck a child in who's been traumatized in the bedroom next to yours and then figure out how to deal with that in the middle of the night or first thing in the morning, you need a different set of support. So we are working and our foster care program needs, it's still developing and we're still working on that to make it a stronger program. For instance, one of the things we had set out to do at the top of 2020 was to really build a stronger foster care support community by just hosting foster care family fun days is what we called them. And that would be an opportunity for children and their families to come together because the demographics are very striking. 99% of the children we serve are African-American or Latina. 100% of our volunteers are Caucasian. And in the era of Black Lives Matter, you know, we have to deal with this. We didn't design um, the demographics to look like that, but it's just a fact. So um, we have conversations about how to do um, an African-American little girl's hair. 
where to get an African-American male's haircut. Just answering all the simple questions that your community may not be able to answer because your community looks like you. But then bringing all these people with similar experiences together so that in a relaxed environment, they could have positive exchanges, they could you know, exchange phone numbers and just, you know, make some um, more organic connections. But then we also were giving it structure. But with social distancing guidelines, we haven't been able to do that. And then the other piece that we did pre-COVID that we're not able to do, we also provided respite care for foster families who, you know, many of them have children of their own, or if they don't, they have, you know, they work and, you know, having that work home balance is stressful for everybody. And it's surely stressful for a foster parent who may be dealing with a child with even minor trauma. Children are tough when they're well adjusted and they're healthy and they're thriving. They have increased need if they've experienced trauma and the trauma of being removed from their home is trauma that the foster parent will need support with. But we're not able to do the respite um, care during COVID. So um, this community of foster parents is an incredibly special community of people who are opening up their homes and their hearts, and they really have the opportunity to change um, the security for a child who needs temporary care and may need prolonged foster care placement until they can be adopted. I'm sure this varies, but what's a typical length of time for a child to be with a foster family? That's difficult to say because it really does vary. Um, Ideally, you would want one foster care placement, but many children and certainly African-American children stay in foster care longer than non-Brown children. Hmm. And they're less likely to be adopted the older they get. And so I would assume that then because half of the families stop being foster families in the first year, that that means that there are multiple placements for these kids. Which further traumatizes them. And the longer children stay in foster care, the more likely that uh, they are to become parents before they are equipped to take care of their children. So we're just recycling generations into foster care. If we don't do more on the preventive side, which is back to DC-127. That's what's happening on the, is you all are working on the preventive side of that to keep it from ever getting to that point. Yes, to saying what are the pieces that you need support to stabilize that are preventing you from making sure that you provide and protect for your children. So I want to kind of conclude our, our time by talking a little bit even more broadly, if we can, because I want people, if they're in the D.C. area, D.C., Maryland, Virginia area, they can support D.C. 127 directly, right? Like we can go to dc127.org and and give volunteers. Is that accurate? That is correct. What are the greatest needs that we could help serve uh, in that area now? You know, foster care doesn't touch you until it touches you. So the fact that we're talking about it and advocating for vulnerable children is really significant. And I don't want to minimize that because the other thing I want your listeners to understand is 75% 
of the prison population has spent time in foster care. If we don't touch the lives of children while they're children, we're just creating hard-hearted people who are desperate. Wow. So thinking about how can you affect the change that you believe in, pray for us, pray for our organization, pray for growth, that we can grow the number of people that we're serving. Yes, support us financially. Yes, volunteer with us. If you have a brilliant idea, share that with me. Um, One thing that COVID has taught us is that we have to expand and get very creative about the way that we provide our services. For the first time in our organization's history, we're providing direct financial support as the result of COVID because our families were the first to lose their jobs. And so we now provide monthly groceries. We're offering psychological counseling sessions. We will pay one rent or utility bill for a family who has lost their job. We provide distance learning support. And again, you know, we're we're serving a greater population of teen mothers in foster care who need help just finishing high school. We're buying, you know, undergarments for those mothers. So we're really, we're we're trying to meet the increased need. Um, We are retraining our volunteers to become mandated reporters so that they know what to look for. Because again, abuse and neglect charges have gone down, not because incidents of neglect and abuse have stopped, but because we can't see it. And we're retraining what to listen for, what to look for during FaceTime or Zoom calls when those are possible. Just advocate because this is a population that is by and large forgotten until it unfortunately touches your world. If you're a member of a church, we partner with churches in DC to um, recruit volunteers and to serve our families. The last question is, I know a lot of people listening are probably like, I would like to be a foster family at some point. Or maybe now, maybe they're making the decision today and they just happened upon this podcast. I'm curious what you would offer them in terms of just wisdom. I don't even know if it's hope or cautionary or whatever, but like, what would you say to someone who maybe isn't in the DC area? So they can't just, you know, engage with DC 127 directly, but what would you offer them in terms of things to consider, to think about as they move forward in this process? Every foster parent that I've talked to, even those that gave up, They got more life perspective, gratefulness, gratitude, appreciation for their own circumstance and inspiration in many cases from serving foster children than they ever gave to anyone. Well, my deepest thanks to Miss Moreland and her team at DC 127. For more on this incredible organization, please head to dc127.org and that link is in our show notes. If you have a moment and you haven't done so yet, would you please go to whatever podcast service you are listening to this show on and rate and review The New Activist? It is hugely helpful and it is the best way that you can help other people know about the show. 
outside of sharing it on social media, which reminds me, we are on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of them are New Activist Is, and our website is newactivist.is. Look forward to chatting with you there. A huge thanks to Propaganda, who scored today's episode. All of his music, merch, coffee, everything can be found at prophiphop.com. Today's show was produced by Christina Gore, hosted and directed by me, with additional editing by Chad Michael Snavely. And with that, we go back into the world. On behalf of Cynthia Moreland, as well as my colleagues at International Justice Mission, I am Eddie Koffeltz. Take care, friends. <laughs>